0: Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Selickson. Hey, Dan.
1: Hello, Miriam. You know, for people like us who share a brain, keeping things funny is an important mechanism for coping with life.
0: Baruch Hashem, we have the same sense of humor, so usually we're the ones making all the jokes on this podcast, but not this time.
1: That's right, because back in the old days, such as episode number one through 121 of this podcast, we did in fact provide the majority of jokes from scratch. But I was today years old when I learned that if you invite a rabbi who is also a professional standout comedian and the co-author of the definitive book on Jewish humor to speak on your podcast, you better just plan to laugh along, enjoy the ride, and give up on the right to get a word in edgewise.
0: Our guest today is Reb Moshe Waldox, storyteller, stand up comedian, co editor of the Big Book of Jewish Humor, and founding rabbi at Temple Beth Zion in Brookline. Just keep listening to hear Reb Moshe regale us with tales of his life adventures in Jewish comedy and spirituality, told with abundant and occasionally very loud enthusiasm. Reb Moshe, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. My pleasure to be here.
0: You first reached out to us earlier this year around Purim with the great suggestion of doing an episode entirely devoted to the history and impact of Jewish humor. And we loved that idea because you are the authority on this topic and we're thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Even though we're nowhere near Purim, it is still relevant year round. So we would love to know how you first became interested in studying and documenting the history of Jewish comedy.
2: Well, first I was a performer. I think that's where it comes from. And I, early on in my life, I, I was a performer, certainly by the time high school came along. So I was always interested in doing shtick. Uh, shtick is, uh, means a, a piece, and it's from the German "stück." But a shtick means a piece, and it became to known as a funny piece. So I was always doing that kind of stuff. The book that influenced uh, my partner and I, William novak and i was booked by nathan Ausubel, which some of you may have heard of called the treasury of jewish humor and he also had a treasury of jewish folklore and that was a standard book for the 1950s and it was a collection and uh, etc it was post-war years so there was a lot of uh, other books that were coming that were uh, bringing uh, the eastern european jewish humor so i was a performer and then i moved to israel from uh, for three years for my junior year and there i got involved in the theater a uh, very wonderful director who ran a, a theater program at the Hebrew University. And as, because of that, I got involved in doing a comedy review uh, written by a f- person you probably n- don't remember by the name Ephraim Kishon. He was an Israeli satirist. And the play, it was a review of many skits. It was called Unfair to Goliath. It was after the Six-Day War, right? Lo Hogan Klape Goliath, it was called. And it was done in English, and it was, at, it was there for the tourists. And we did it at the television. Hilton for a pretty long time. Then we traveled around the country where there were many English speakers, as you know, in Israel. And I was very much affected by that. And at the same time that I was doing that, I was studying at the Hebrew University, the intellectual history of Jewish thought. So I got into that perennial thing, which all of you will have someday, because you're young people. You'll look back. You said, Ah! there was a split in the road. Where do I go? Where do I go? Do I go to save the Jewish people or do I enter this world of licentiousness and lasciviousness? I met people who were at Brandeis and they said, if you want to do a doctorate at Hebrew University, you'll never get it. You'll be 60 years old and you have to wait for everybody to die before you get a job. So I applied to Brandeis and I came here. And it uh, took me 13 years to finish my doctorate. During graduate school, I did a- academic work. I taught at Clark. I filled in for people who weren't sabbatical. So I got Boston-based. And then from 1986 to 1998, I was on the road as a performer. The book came out in 81. And for many years, I performed all through the United States and Canada, et cetera, with about 200 communities. And then every one of my mentors, and I've been blessed with marvelous mentors over the years, said, why don't you settle down? Yeah, okay, I'll settle down. And then there's a very long story, which I won't go into now, because of my teacher, Rabbi Zalman, Shaikh to Shalom, Yolava Shalom. A name that people are now getting to know more. We were on a flight back from India after we visited with the Dalai Lama in 1990. It's a rather long flight, so he said to me, "Why don't you get ordained, get Smicha?" So I said, everybody thinks I'm a rabbi anyway. I have a beard. I'm short. I got a pot belly a little bit of balding on the top. Every rabbi has that. That's why we wear pot. And he basically said, no, what would think about it? I came to Boston and I found a mentor named Arthur Green, the founder of the rabbinical school. I studied with him for about six years. So I got ordained in 1996 and I came out big. I did a gigantic thing. I rented a a hall at Brandeis. I invited rabbis in the community. I did it up big. I had a band. I had my girls, little girls sing. Um, and then luckily enough, there was a person there from the Boston Globe and she put put me onto the top of the arts and leisure page. Back then it was a little bit different. Unorthodox rabbi. You know, I was one of the first non-denominational rabbis and that worked. It did very well. And I hoped to become more of a media rabbi. I, I did uh, 200 shows for Jewish cable is one of the first Jewish cable things in 1982. There's before, there's the internet.
0: You can't convince me that the world existed prior to the internet.
2: We had to make copies of the three-quarter inch tapes, which you probably have never seen, and uh, send them out to all the different cable stay stations. And I was going to do that, and I started a thing called the Corporation for Jewish Broadcasting, which was too early, too soon, etc., in 1997, I believe it was, or six, the guy at my Sunoco station, and that's where the story gets very long, so I'll stop. <laughs> so I'd say, I said, I became a rabbi at TBZ, which was a dying shul. We have 50 elders at TBZ then. Only 14 were ambulatory, and they didn't speak to each other very much. So it was really a marvelous place, and it was it, they were ready to lock the doors. So, because of the Sinoco guy, I had his son was going to be bar mitzvah, and he wanted me to help out because he knew I was into Jewish stuff. I was a Jew, and uh, he was a Jew too, so it worked out nicely. And uh, I asked, "Where were you bar mitzvah?" He said, "Well, I was mitzvah at Temple Beth Zion on Beacon Street." He says, "Isn't that remarkable? You, what's, why don't you have your kids bar mitzvah there? Wouldn't that be terrific?" So. We had the bar mitzvah there against the, the, the rabbi that was a little bit hesitant about it. But they say, uh, we want the, the R- Rabbi Waldock's to participate in the service, etc. As I walk in, as I walk down the aisle, these two uh, elderly fellows say, uh, tell me, are you a rabbi? I said, yeah, I've been a rabbi for about a year now. says, okay, we're looking for a rabbi. He says, don't you have a rabbi, don't talk to me now. So after the holidays, they call me and they, said, and they say, okay, we're interested, can you help us out? And at that time, I had a lot of gigs and I really couldn't, so I said I could do it once a month. But I wanted to also do once a month my style, which is renewal style. And I had a small group that was meeting with me after uh, my ordination, we used to do more experimental stuff, a lot of meditation, chanting stuff. So. I said, well, you have to see what I do. And I remember it was November 15th, 1999, 97. And I brought the 30 or so people who were in my group, and we did my tile of service, and there was meditation, and I remember hearing a guy in the back say, are they dead? Why are they quiet? Are they dead? I said, oh, no, they're not dead, they're just keeping quiet.
1: <laughs> um, Moshe, I, I have to ask you, I'm glad that you're funny, because you can't write the book on Jewish humor and come in here and uh, amuse us, which you've already done greatly. I would like to know how you bring shtick, how you bring humor into your work as a congregational rabbi at Temple Beth Zion, because I'm... If it's silent, I'm not going to go. But if you're talking for some of it, you might get me in there.
0: Dan's not in there for the meditation.
2: What started immediately was I was was doing a little stand-up from the pulpit. And I would be, and this is an important word, irreverent. That was very important. So people said, oh, is this really, what kind of shul is this? I said, it's exactly an independent place, and we have no doctrines, and we're not checking and stuff like that. I started doing humor and jokes and and stuff, and people were intrigued by that. It was a very self-selected crowd. I also did a lot of teaching and stuff like that, and people started coming. Within three years, we had 200 members. And then something developed, which is the Kol Nidre joke.
0: Tell us more.
2: I had to find, uh, see, Kol Nidre is the big speech of the year. you get everybody there. For our
0: listeners, I just want to say, if you're not familiar, it is on Yom Kippur.
2: It is the beginning of Yom Kippur, right? So I, so I started with a joke, and that, that became the real challenge.
1: The funniest night of the year, you had to really kill it.
2: <laughs> right, because I believe you can't open the heart without humor. Mm. For me, that's the aspect of humor, I love the most, is that it opens the heart. It creates solidarity between the speaker and the audience. And it, it creates a shared experience of humor. And once you open the heart, you can put something into it. So for me, the issue was not, you got to do chubby, you'll do better next year. We know that. That's the whole speech, etc. And you got to do it in a fancy way. But they remember the joke. And that became important. So I spent the whole summer looking for the right joke that would lead me into a pretty good talk and people began to expect it and then you have that minute this is the scary part that minute silence after the joke and you don't know is it gonna bomb or it's not gonna bomb and thank god i would get roars of laughter and that, that was really encouraged me to continue do, doing it otherwise it would not have. so yeah I, I i i like to hear laughter in the shul i remember when i first started the shul that we were getting joyous and clapping one older man from the previous generation said what's going on here i never came to shul to be happy <laughs> so I sent them to another shul and he's been unhappy for years now that's very good but whatever this is the idea is you know Reb Nachman you know Reb Nachman's, you know mitzvah gedolahi hamid liyot b'simcha it's a great mitzvah to always if you will try to be in joy ivduot Hashem Besimcha is the great is the great theme of the Bal Shem Tov about what a citizen was going to be is you open the heart with simcha stories songs and then maybe you can get something into a person so that's the story. Basically, is that 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 I am a, a disciple of joy, but I'm also an angry person. So it's interesting. So I'm stressful. I'm angry. That's why I do meditation. I brought silence into the service. I brought chanting into the service. Brought dancing into the service. When I was a much young, younger guy, I still got up and. Ditch stick like that now my colleague who's now the senior rabbi is doing it and we're it was a self-selected group and people came and we didn't have anything for families in the beginning that was also important we weren't going to do anything for the kinderlach we're doing it for ourselves Uh, because we didn't have an educational structure we did we told people this is not the shul for you now with kids and 10 12 years later it was and now we have baruch hashem poo 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 Right? We have 30% of the congregation are under 40. Chaste
0: Hashem,
2: Berch Hashem. Ha- Not Chaste Hashem. From Schtissel, I learned Chaste Hashem. <laughs> I never knew Chaste Hashem. <laughs> now we got Chaste Hashem. Whatever. We're living in a strange time now between white supremacy and Schtissel.
0: It's very confusing.
2: There's... Very confusing. It's hard to fathom, but let me ask you a question, Miriam. Go ahead, go ask ahead, you a question, Dan. Right? On the scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is OI, which is a default for Jews, okay? I'd like to make it joy, but at least oi and oy. Vey, where are you? A number from one to ten.
0: I would say Gival. Oy Givalt. It's like Oi 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 Oi
2: Oyveismir. Oy, geval, oy, 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 oy vey is mir
0: is, is actually also contains my name. So yes, I would say it's beyond Oy. Vey.
2: Beyond Oy Vey? Yes. Oy, oy gewalt, oy gewalt, I feel, is beyond oy oy Now I'm saying gewalt. Right? I used to be Gewalt. I used to be a 6, perhaps, and the question is, should I move to a 9?
1: I, I don't want to go I, to a I 10 I think yet. during this whole thing with Gaza and Israel and, and the anti-Semitism that was cropping up around that, I, I went up to around 8.5 to 9. I'm usually a, a settled 6, but oh only boy. because I don't read the news every day. So if I actually read the news every day, if I read my aunt's Facebook feed, I'd be an 11.
2: It, yeah. it
0: depends if you're on social yeah. media or off. Because I had to take a Twitter break during that time for this exact reason. Because it was what is beyond Oi Vault.
2: No, it's uh that that's a whole show we could do. Right. And the point is that being a child of Holocaust survivors, right? I, I, I was born two weeks after my parents uh, arrived in 1949. I must say that has that had an impact on me with humor as well. I'll tell you how. You you have to have a choice as uh, a child of survivors. You're going to either cry or you're not going to cry so there was a thing there was a religious ritual sunday nights at 8 p.m. on cbs called the ed sullivan show a
0: little before my time
2: you may have heard about it exactly but if you can get tapes of that i know
1: the beatles were on i know that
2: beatles yeah you may but the bottom line is this is that that uh, uh, there were comedians on that show at that point and we'll talk about the history of at that point there was a hegemony of Jewish Americans or American Jews who were stand-up comedians. They didn't do Jewish stuff. They did Jewish style, Mm. okay? We'll talk about that difference. There's Jewish style and there's Jewish or being a Jew. It's a very, it's a different thing. And they made my parents laugh. And I said, ooh, this is really amazing. They went through so much. My father lost his whole family. mother was in a labor camp. And I said, wow, they still have the capacity to laugh. So I found that to be very heartening, and then that basically prompted me to go on the humorous side rather than on uh, the tragic side. And I didn't talk much about being a child of survivors for very long, but now I have no choice but speaking right. about it because they're all dead. So <laughs> basically I'm caught in a, between Scylla and Charybdis, if you remember them from your uh, Greek
0: mythology. I do actually. For once that was, see, that was a reference so far back
2: You do know, remember, Scylla was a hell of a, oh, I love Scylla, Scylla and I were like this. But that
0: was a reference so far back that I got it, but Ed Sullivan's show is too recent, but not recent enough, so I'll get it again.
2: The Ed Sullivan show. It was an important cultural thing because he had the, remember, this was a time, I know some of your viewers, uh, of your listeners are not going to really believe this. There was a time when you only had one TV in the house. I don't believe it. I know you don't believe it. And everyone who wanted to watch together The Sullivan Show had to sit in the same room. Now, I'm not saying I don't want to romanticize it. It doesn't mean you talk to each other necessarily, but you're all in the same room. And Sullivan, on his show, being a tremendous impresario, could satisfy the entire range from somebody from the metropolitan opera to yitzhak perlman he just was able to reach the widest audience and in those days the reason you had kids uh, you may not remember this at all because is that they had no remote control so your job was to change the channel There was going like to three to choose
1: from so you didn't really need No, to, you know, i was a much, new yorker the right? orca I, I had six <laughs> and
2: we had the million dollar movie which is like cable in a way showed the same film for a week uh, that's why I, I, I basically loved humor, and I wanted to understand it a little bit better. And I started uh, you, doing more academic study about it, which which kills it to a certain degree. We said that somebody explaining a joke in our in introductions, like dissecting a frog, there isn't much left after it. But I read a book by Freud. You may have heard of, Freud, heard of him, right? He was a lie. He, he was the first lie down comic. I call him the first lie down comic. And Freud wrote a book called Humor: A Wit and Its Relation to the Unconscious. Now, if you know something about Freud, it's a little bit, I know it's back. Freud was a Jewish. I don't know if he was a Jew, but he was jewish And he loved Jewish humor. When he was a young man, he loved jokes. And he had only Jewish clientele, and they would just exchange jokes. And he wrote to a guy named Fleece, who was another well-known early psychologist. he writes write to Fleece, I, I want to put together a collection of Jewish jokes. And Fleece says the look, you're already on precarious ground with this whole psychiatry thing. Don't do it. And he said okay, and then he put out a book where he psychologized it, and he tried to explain why, what is Jewish, what is humor about, and what is the power of humor. And he came up with some stuff. I don't agree with everything. And then a student of his, Theodore Reich, wrote a book, Jewish Wit, and I read that, etc. And the thing that was most um, attractive was that here was somebody taking it seriously and including a lot of jokes in the book, and many of them were old Jewish jokes. So I said, ah. Oh, he finally got his humor book out of Freud and they basically see humor as displacement of stress and anxiety. There was a lot of talk in those days and it's still very common to hear from people, uh, Jewish humor is laughter through tears. You may have heard that expression and that's inaccurate. I've been spending the last 50 years basically trying to disabuse people of that because if you accept that it means uh, to be Jewish, you got to suffer and humor do- doesn't stop bullets. So humor is not laughter through tears. What makes Jewish humor unique in its own way, is that it has a deep self-critical content. It is a antidote to pomposity. A good shtoch, a stoch is a, a jab. A good stoch into an inflated ego is what a good joke can do, and you can deflate. So that's one thing. It's self-criticism. We have the right. And I think we earned it to have as much stupidity as any other
1: community. (laughs) And
2: we're doing terrific. We have a lot of stupidity. And Jewish humor, if you look at it in the book, ranges over all of human experience. Family, food, certainly politics, certainly anti-Semitism, even though anti-Semitism is a small part of it. God, for instance, doesn't do too well in Jewish humor. Rabbis horribly in Jewish humor. So this idea of an anti-authoritarian, bottom-up kind of critique is what Jewish humor's great strength is, and that's it. And again, some will argue with me, many have argued with me. I see it as an extension of the prophetic tradition.
0: Tell me the jokes of Isaiah.
2: Oh, uh, we will destroy you and in all parts of you and this and that, and I hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> Or he has this other funny one, which is now sounds even worse, turning your swords into plowshares. you got to know you got to be oh, kidding.
0: Oh, that's a good joke. That is a good joke.
2: He and all the prophets didn't want their prophecies to be fulfilled. A successful prophet didn't have the doom happen. That was it. And uh, the last of the prophets, by the way, Malachi, Malachi, which is the last one, talks about Elijah coming at the great day. And what does he do? he wants a conversation to take place between the generations and if this happens we will avoid destruction that's why he comes to the seder not to drink the wine he wants to hear are you having that intergenerational a discussion and one of the ways we have helped keep the intergenerational thing going at least until recent times has been jokes that has become a commonality of expression if you're with a lot of people who know humor, just go straight to the punchline. You don't have to tell them the joke. But that that's really an important ingredient in, if you will, this long tradition of being self-critical, of saying we can do better and making fun of our foibles. And I think that's true. Some people see that as self-hate. I don't. I see it as self-criticism. And I think that's really an important part of Jewish humor. And the, this tearful saga of the Jew thing, you know, okay, yeah, we suffered. And then we moved then we and then we it, and, and then we moved. That's Jewish history for some people. And uh, the creativity just is, isn't there. So what I'm not gonna take, take us into a whole lecture because I'm an academic and you ring the bell, it's 45 minutes. Just say that I can say honestly, the greatest contribution the Jews have made to the United States is humor. It is now American humor. And it came on a scene where new kind of urban humor was being created by the immigrant community. And uh, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but at that point there was a, believe it or not, division in the United States. What? I know it's hard to believe. And there was in the South and the Midwest something called minstrel humor, which was racist, of course. And up North, there was this new flow of immigrants, Jews, Italians, etc., who they found very threatening, be the way today people find immigrants threatening and and the jews decided to go into had no choice but to go into risky businesses very few were offered a vice presidency at the chase manhattan bank very few i don't think any as a matter of fact so you went into risky stuff the people who started the nickelodeons and went on later to become mgm and to become the warner brothers it's a risk entertainment's a risk Performance is a risk, etc. But they got onto Broadway. The Marx Brothers particularly is a good example of this. They got from vaudeville to Broadway to the films, and they created these marvelous ca- characters where are now part of American culture, not Jewish culture. Listeners, I'm, I'm raising this uh, onto a screen, which you will not see. Yes,
0: all three of us are currently holding up the big book of Jewish I'm, I'm humor. I'm holding up mine. We're no all holding up our but book. Us, so we're valid and, each and validating each other. is an life. actual
2: book, right.
0: It is a physical, actual book. We all took notes, even though one of us actually wrote it. So the big book of Jewish humor was first published 40 years ago this year, right? It is a hilariously overwhelming compendium of Jewish and Jewish-inspired humor, What was the catalyst to having you and your co-editor, William Novak, gather all of this material, stories, cartoons, jokes, into this resource? And I will add on to that, what do you consider the oldest Jewish comedic text that you have encountered, the Avraham Avinu of Jewish jokes?
2: Well, Beshevit Singer, I'll go to the second one first. Mishevitz Singer, the great uh, Yiddish writer, said, why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel had told him an old joke. But that's that's just a Sing Singer line. So let me go to the first part first. The first part was we were approached by a friend who was uh, doing a book, uh, Richard Siegel, one of the co-editors of something you may have heard of, called The Jewish Catalog. Uh, it was a major cultural thing there was the whole catalog that came out in the 60s and the 70s and it was part of the diy do it yourself you can the a road started people were not looking for standard rabbinical supervision etc and these books were big successes and he approached us and said we're looking for something on jewish humor would you just put together a collection of jokes So we said to him, you know what? If we're doing this already, let's do it in a different way. Today, it's it's not strange, but we put together all these different elements. uh, Excerpts from novels, screenplays, poetry, short stories, uh, cartoons. That was a big deal. And those were the days before cut and paste on your computer. We literally hired somebody to cut and paste.
0: (laughs) My God. Literally.
2: It was just an amazing thing. And we worked very hard on on the design of the book. And we decided to have commentaries. Along the side, like a page of Talmud right Yes, yeah.
0: Dan and I are doing Dafiomi Yes,
2: so am I. Oh, And okay. I know why we shouldn't. Now I know why it's a waste of time to study Talmud.
0: <laughs> I actually find it hilarious, and, and my favorite <laughs> uh, page in this book is actually a, a, a fake book review of the Talmud. <laughs>
2: Eliezer, I think Eliezer Siegel did the
0: Yeah, it, I love sure it. Exactly. There's,
1: there's one gem a day that yeah, I just... Cool. I actually
0: oh, find that the, cool. the Talmud extremely funny. We did a whole episode about Dafyomi and, and we talked about it in there. There
2: is a lot of stuff. We have quotations from yes. the Tal Talmud yes. in the book that we consider to be funny or absurd. A lot of absurd, etc. So the book was put together over two years and the book came out in the fall of 81 and it was, as they say in Hebrew, a schlager it was a hit we sold a lot of books a lot of books it's a large book so you could use it for pressing flowers Use some people it's not heavy enough to be a door door but it was a the book did very well and it became one of the standard bar mitzvah bat mitzvah gifts Okay. That became the book. At that time, you could get away with spending 11 bucks in a bar mitzvah present. Today, it's got to be a small Ferrari, whatever the kids want. So the book came out it sold and went into different, kept getting printed again and again. We changed the cover. And then on its 25th anniversary, we decided to go back and to do a new introduction and add a hundred jokes to the book. We decided not to do this for the 40th because we're tired and no one, we only sold this last year, 600 books first years were 25,000, etc., which made it a really big book for a Jewish book. And I like to find those 600 people and get them into a room and figure out, why'd you buy this book? I can't figure it out. (laughs) Even now that it costs 25 bucks, you still can't give it. I went to the White House Hanukkah dinner. I was invited when Bob Amba was there. And I met a guy, and he saw my name, and he said, did you do that book? He says, yeah, I did. And he says, I thought you'd be dead by now, because they didn't realize that. I was only thirty or so when I did the book, but they thought it was an old guy that did the book. But whatever, the book did very well. I think it, the book gave people an education. I give it to people who want to understand a little deep deeper what we're about, and they come back with it very surprised that they don't get many of the jokes <laughs> because they're not from a Jewish background. But this is where we get to the issue of Jewish style or whether Jewish. We had to decide: are we only interested in Jewish style, which was called the urban wit? Fast-talking wordplay, but not Jewish subjects, okay? It's a Jewish style, like a Jewish-style deli. You can get this, but you can also get a ham sandwich. So we decided to go the strict constructionist way of defining Jewish humor by content and not by style. And that's still sort of the dividing line between those comedians at the Ed Sullivan Show who had a Jewish delivery... But the content wasn't necessarily Jewish. This has changed now in the recent years. It's changed now. We find a lot more Jews coming out with Jewish stuff, which is interesting. And all through, there's Hasidic batchanim who are doing stand-up. There's now a couple of Orthodox guys doing stand-up, and, and there's people talking about Jewish things. Sarah Silverman talks about Jewish things. John Stewart certainly. Stephen Colbert likes Jews. He talks about Jewish things.
0: You've got you've got Tiffany Haddish,
2: and she and Billy Crystal have a new film coming out you now. I loved Billy Chris. He was one of the most talented people I ever saw. So the book uh, sold, sold, kept alive. And it, we got good response to it. So that was fine. And it got me a lot of gigs. No question. It was, it was a great calling card. And I would go out and do shows. I would do an hour and a half stand-up and stories and stuff like that all over the United States. So that's the story uh, in a nutshell that when I became a, a congregational rabbi, I did less gigs. It was, I couldn't travel as much. But all of my men- mentors were very pleased that I found a, a base because I was able to support my f- family on gigs, but never save anything, ne- never had a real salary kind of thing. So far, so good. I was there for 22 years. I'm now the founding rabbi. I'm on the web- website still. That's good. And I'm shepping Sheping Nachas. Nachas, Sheping, I mean drawing from the well mm. of pride. That's with shepping, not Schlepping naches, let me make a mistake, Schlepping, not Schlepping, Shepping. And because I'm glad to see that the shul is vibrant and we got through this COVID thing very well, and now are we allowing 70 to 90 people in, and we're having in-person stuff now, and it's really good.
1: It's really I want good. to ask a question about how you drew your sources Please. for the book. You said in the 2006 25th anniversary edition of Big Book of Jewish Humor, 25 years ago, our first impulse was to look for material in books. Today, we would look first to television. Does that remain true now? And if not, what is your medium, your go-to for Jewish humor, Jewish material?
2: Well, I still think that what we now have, we have different genres. We have the old Jews telling jokes. It still works. It still works. Which you can still find. And there's one guy who does... Jewish humorous sense, central. And he will have every Monday an old Jew telling a joke. It used to be jokes were transferred usually at affairs, at fundraisers, when you were in the- the men's room and there were standing next to somebody you hoped he aimed well but whatever you said next to the and that's where you jokes were told to each other so there were communal events then internet did it there are humor columns being written there are blogs and i think that some of it is good in a way and some of it isn't that good but what i'm fascinated about it is how it, it, it's still pervasive it's still pervasive across the spectrum and what's happening now is israeli humor and that's Really, like one of my favorite shows, which I watch in Hebrew, because I lived in Israel, my Hebrew is pretty good, is Hayyuhudim Bayim. Have you seen this yet? Yes. The Jews are coming. But uh,
0: the problem is my Ivrit is not good. It doesn't matter. They
2: have have a few with subtitles. Okay, yes. So it's a a basic uh, show about Jewish historical events done in the most Monty Python way. So Israeli humor is becoming important to me as well, and I look to Israeli humor for humor of the Jewish content.
0: So we're gonna talk a little bit more about that later. We're gonna talk about schtissel too. But let's circle back to the social media for a moment because some of the Jewish humor I personally uh, enjoy the most are tweet references to Jewish traditions. So there's the Hillel and Shammai um, Twitter accounts that constantly fight with each other, just like the real Hillel and Shammai. There's also like the modern Talmud account, which does a Zafiomi through a modern telling. From Tweet Explainer, rejected Feldheim books. There's so many. Absolutely. Very specific humor. But there's another really fun part of this, which is that, any jewish person with a twitter account can mock things collectively in real time with our jewish family half the world away i think of the bonanza of memes that came out after the marjorie taylor green jewish space laser revelation
1: it was a revelation
0: (laughs) right revelation bernie's mittens (laughs) bernie's inauguration mittens
1: Purdy's Mittens.
2: That's so a great title for a within, book.
0: Within seconds, everyone has jokes. They're That's not right. good necessarily, but they are. That's right.
2: Well, first of all, the essential book for Jewish humor is Migilat Esther. Okay, it's the, the Scroll of Esther. Very true. The Scroll of Esther is a, a secular book. It doesn't mention God in any way. They, the rabbis spend tons of time trying to find God there, but he's, he's not in the book. And it's a parody of the Persian court. Okay, so bear in mind that this was a radical book. The first audience to hear that the characters are Mordechai and Esther said, oh God, they're making fun of Marduk and Ishtar, the gods of Persia. You play the Persian king as an idiot, and then you have the classic villain, and he's tying Esther to the railroad tracks, and then Mordechai saves the day. That's an essential basis of Jewish humor, is parody, Mm -hmm. Mm P-A-R-O-D-Y. And that's been carried through Purim Torah. Which you were mentioning before, taking a traditional text and rewriting it in a new parlance. There's a guy who wrote a called Nidre, saying using all the names of wines: Golbeaujoule, Vichardonnet, Vacherabey, Vella, you know, eh, Champagne, ya, whatever. So you get that stuff, and that's that's really great. And I do that kiddush every Purim, right? Because remember, Yom Kippur is a Yom Kippurim.
0: Very true.
2: A day like for him, because on Yom Kippur Jews masquerade as Jews. <laughs> but that's a separate question. But so parody and the guy who I think I love the most, and I think you probably lo- love him as well, who's taken it and made it really an art form, is Mel Brooks.
0: I do love Mel Brooks. I have many people on this in this book that I do not like, but he is. Fan favorite of them,
2: and and I must say he's kept this idea of the parody alive. And uh, his two thousand year old man, the clever idea. Who is it? Of course, an older Jewish guy. But the idea of parody now parody is important for two reasons. One, it upsets the authority. Purim was particularly considered dangerous, dangerous holiday. It's called the liminal holiday. Mm -hmm. You know that Mm -hmm. it's between things, and it's based upon the bacchanalia. Carnival, where people, uh, you know, drunken orgies, we try to avoid the uh, orgies, but the drunkenness we keep. And it's like St. Patrick's day, the same thing, Mardi Gras, right? All that. And uh, it's dangerous because of the costume, because if you judge a person by their external costume, Purim can devastate that. If you're the king and come into a hall and there are 40 other people dressed as the king, who's the king? Right, that's why it's very uh, dangerous. But what it does, it 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 takes a text that we know and turns it up and around. And when you turn it up upside down, nafochu, it says right, you turn it upside down, you get to a place where your normal parameters are shattered, and you're open, you're open now to hear to hear things. We have a quote from the Talmud in the book about two rabbis getting drunk, and one slices the other one's head off, and uh, then miraculously it comes back, and the guy says. You shouldn't do do that again, basically. But this is the kind of stuff. So this parody thing is very important for one, for but it, but what it does, it demands something of the, uh, of the person who is writing it and who's reading it. You have to know what's being parodied. What a
0: good point. Uh,
2: otherwise, it's mach the choice. It doesn't matter. Mel Brooks took every well-known genre <laughs> and was phenomenal with it. A lot of people I know don't have a sense of humor. That's also an issue. Have you noticed that?
0: I have.
2: Fanatics have no sense of humor. They just can't get it. By doing parody, you basically enhance the text. You give it a new perush, a new commentary. And these commentaries really help you see what the text was either trying to do successfully or were not successful at doing it. So I find parody as a kind of flattery. Today they call it homage. Right, homage, or they call it what's what they say in songs, uh, a mixer, mix up, sm- remix, mix smash up. remix,
0: a remix, yeah, a remix. No, when,
2: when they bring an old song into a oh, new sampling. song, is it- sampling, or there remix. You go. Sampling, sampling that's the word, sampling, right? Yeah, right, sampling. so
0: do you see all these tweets that come up, these memes that go viral, and our comment is like a worldwide. Instead of generational, it's worldwide simultaneous commentary and parody of the same idea. Do you enjoy that this, there's like a democratization of Jewish humor?
2: Absolutely. Not, not good good, good for me professionally, but otherwise. <laughs> but it's, it is a, a good example of what did exist in the pre-media times. Mm-hmm. For instance, in Eastern Europe, humor was a very important function of societal cohesiveness. But it was very common folk-produced humor. This is, I would say, also folk-produced humor. And the fact that it spreads so quickly is good and bad because it also Mm -hmm. dissipates very quickly. And sometimes it's very hard to pass it on beyond the initial reaction. Whereas the jokes that we have, the jokes that I tell, are stories. And and one of the things we did for the book was we rewrote every joke we stole from anybody else. So the book would have, have a single voice. And that was very challenging to rewrite it in a new voice. And uh, part of what a good joke does is it makes you laugh along the way. So the punchline is just basically, uh, if you will, a cherry on top of the cake. But it's not, it's how you get there as well. You've heard the story, the road, the journey. And that's true, it's true. And a good story brings you that way. It takes you to another place, creates another time, perhaps. And then you have the other humor, which is observational humor, you know, the Seinfeld, the George Carlin, etc. So that's observational. And you have some of that in Jewish humor as well. But for the most part, Jewish humor which has been so remarkable about it is how you can pass these stories on through punchlines and people write different stories to get to the punchline. That's what I think phenomenal.
0: So I'm gonna offer a controversial take to out there listening anybody. Don't at me if you're out there listening to this episode and you disagree. There is no love lost between me and some of the icons of Jewish comedy you do talk about in the book. I'm thinking of Larry David, for, uh, co-creator of Seinfeld and creator and star of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So I have always felt, before this conversation, before I read the the, the book, I felt that he just embodied the sort of really cringy New York, Ashkenormative manipulative obnoxiousness that made me just die inside.
2: Absolutely. Right, so, but Absolutely. You have I this Absolutely. quote in this book
0: and it says that I was just like, oh, God, of course, people are going to hate Jews. They think that's what we are. Oh, God. And so, so you have this great quote in the book and you say there's a central misunderstanding about contemporary American Jewish humor that is largely self-hating. It's harsh, vulgar, neurotic and increasingly masochistic. So I read that and I was like, OK, maybe I need to reevaluate my thoughts on this i'm going to do some research for in the spirit of academic inquiry i watched some seinfeld and i still don't get it it still doesn't resonate
2: because it's about nothing no the but show was about the nothing jewish?
0: what am i missing
2: it wasn't jewish it was jewish
0: ah style. there we go okay
2: that's where the difference now with curb he is an obnoxious most miserable person i i probably know and i think he's that way in real life too i don't think he's acting i suspect but and here's the big but but the book is he gets hoisted on his petard whatever a petard is he gets hoisted at the end of every show but the bottom line is that if he would not get it at the end you would be very upset. But he screws himself time and time again. However, why I call him more Jewish is because he is the first one to tackle Jewish topics. Scalping tickets on Rosh Hashanah, pretending he's an Orthodox Jew because he wants to get his friend, the comedian, to get a, a hop higher on the list of those organizations in the cortex community that find liver transplants and kidney transplants. So he puts on a yarmulke oh, and he goes, etc. He does a show on the Israeli-Palestinian. Nobody has ever done a, a comedy thing about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. A, coach, a Jewish restaurant is on one block and a Palestinian restaurant opens across the street. It's so good the Palestinian restaurant chicken that people are slowly moving from the Israeli Jewish restaurant into the Palestinian restaurant, hoping they wouldn't be scene and of course they see everybody they know and then larry gets involved uh, sexually with the owner of the palestinians restaurant they've had a jew and a palestinian are, are involved in, uh, in intercourse and, uh, and the bottom line is at the end he walks down the road between the two but he, there was never ever i've never I, I always said you know archie bunker dealt with stuff you may have heard of all in the family and it was considered to be revolutionary but i've never heard any show deal with anything really serious To be honest, politically, you have emotional stuff and kids growing up, and they have the Goldbergs, which was once a very Jewish show, is now a a totally vacuous show by one of the people who is an actor in Curb Your Enthusiasm jeff garland i see for instance this one clip that i love he's walking down the street in new york with uh, buckner you remember buckner he lost the the it's playoffs a, yes for the so Red a name Red that will so live so in World history you hate it hate it hate a guy so he's walking down the street and this guy comes down and he says are you jewish not a chabad guy are you jewish he says grudgingly he says yes he says okay we need you for a minion upstairs we're doing shiva and comes up and he says you'll have lunch it's okay it's my my cousin so come up and he, he says okay comes up they put is, on in, and then he's there with bill buckner and then the son of the guy who died is a boston red sox fan and hates bill buckner and you get a little argument going at the shiva minion between these two and he, he throws them out now i've never seen any jewish comedy show that there's a shiva minion Show that this is the way Jews live, that you call a Jew in the street and guess what? He goes up.
0: Well, that's true. That happens. But do they usually kick out people for being on the Red Sox and not doing well of a minion? (laughs) <laughs> uh,
2: that's the funny this, part this that's why, the absurdity like... that's the absurdity here in the middle of this very important thing the guy sees Bill Buckner he goes bananas he says you can't be here you can't be here it's never uh, mm, mm. simple that's the point it's never si- simple but uh, you're right he's a miserable character and he gets it in the end so they improv that that's show what, mostly
0: that's like, I fear like that's I'm like this is literally him being himself
2: yes so he sets a scene he sets a scene and he has these great actors and he says okay let's do it from yourself and then we'll figure it out if it worked or not which I think is a very freeing kind of thing because they have set characters right Susie Essman a great comedian hates him curses him all the time she has a character and she could give it to him and talk and say it out loud everything you said Miriam you're a miserable noxious person and and that's what you want to hear because it's you great <laughs> that somebody else also <laughs> shares your antipathy to him. But I I I would say as a, a strict constructionist, I would include I would include Larry. And as a loose constructionist, meaning Jewish style, it would be Seinfeld, where it's rhythms and words and wordplay, etc. Et I et actually
0: find something quite similar in this sense to Sacha Baron Cohen, who oh, initially oh we, well, my hero, we adore, we absolutely adore him. I my love hero. Him him he's been on my list of most inspiring jews for the past get him for i'm trying
2: to get him for an interview he's unbelievable unbelievable.
0: but i will say this so years ago when the first borat movie came out i could not i was just in the theater watching through my hands this time when they released or subsequent movie film i actually was so incredibly moved and i thought how important it was and it was the same concept but my understanding of what The artist, what Sasha was trying to do, had changed. And my understanding of how he was attacking anti-Semitism and bigotry of other forms using this hate-based character had crystallized. But So I watched it, and even though at some parts I was like, uh, covering my eyes, I understood that's what he was getting at.
2: He was just so prescient about how thin is the layer right. of, of American anti-Semitism. Plus, he spoke Hebrew instead of Kazakhstani. So yes. he's, he's winking at the Jews, I say, <laughs> It's okay. It's okay. I'm in this with you. And the last film was important because it came out right before the election. He wanted it to go before the election. And he spoke out against uh, the Zuckerberg. I love what he said. If Goebbels wanted to buy time, let's burn the Jews next week, would you publish it? And probably Zuckerberg would have to say, sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's what's what's changed from the first Borat movie is the ADL at that time was like, oh, God. And then two years ago, ADL is honoring Sasha for his work using the same, yeah.
2: But Miriam, nothing causes anti-Semitism. Jews do not cause anti-Semitism. Oh, Oh,
0: I know. Oh, no!
2: Oh, I know. I know nobody who was not an anti-Semite went to Boris says, Oh, I want to be an anti-Semite. Anti-Semitism is passed on, I believe, in very deep ways from generation to generation. The way we have imbibed mm. democracy, nowhere in the Torah is there any democracy.
0: Nowhere at all. Mm-mm.
2: Nowhere in the Talmud. It's not a value. However, as American Jews... We think it comes with mother's milk. So how do we do? we pass that on, generation. It's no longer, I have to think about, is democracy OK? No, we assume that's going to get passed on. Anti-semites the same. <laughs> Their anti-semitism, if they're lucky, they say, oh Baruch Hashem, not many. Not nah, not many." They say, Hashem, we passed on the Emerson, next generation. Oh, you were successful. Tradition, tradition, doing their Tevya thing. You know what I mean?" But we don't make a, 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 anti-Semites, and I think we have to be careful about looking what our flaw. We have what flaw do we have that caused it? We have no flaws. We're idiots on our own terms. We have stupidity in our own community, and I think it's important for Jewish humor to work its way into the cultural, if you will melange. Well, I always wanted to say melange. So
1: maybe, Moshe, this is an awkward time to do so kind of a good for the Jews question, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want to talk about a Jewish, ish Jewish style comedy, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, because it's wildly popular. Not with me. Even though not with Miriam. It, it features some real material from Jewish stand-up comics like Lenny Bruce, um, yet Lenny Bruce guy yes. phenomenal. phenomenal. Oh, he's great. Phenomenal.
0: He's the he's. I absolutely love him in this show. My problem is not with him.
1: Oh, if if it were the Lenny Bruce movie, you'd watch it. You'd keep watching. Yeah. So, with notable exceptions, the main characters of the show are not Jewish.
2: You mean not Jewish by ethnic background?
1: By ethnic background, what? Right. Non-Jews doing Jewish humor. The
2: yeah, Jew Jew face,
1: you mean? Good for the good for the Jews, bad for the Jews. And I want an additional question. How do you rank the incredibly talented Tony Shaloub historically as a Jewish father? He's in my top five. I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, and he played in The Band's Visit on broad Broadway. He's a Christian Lebanese, which already puts him in a minority status even in the Middle East. I just, uh, he's just phenomenal. He's just a phenomenal actor and it doesn't bother me at all. It would be perhaps if Brad Pitt was playing her father, I could be a little bit more upset. No, no, he's a character actor. That's what I expect of character actors, that they can play different characters. The show itself is, 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 is it's okay. I think season two is better than season one. We're showing such a high level of, of financial security, which mm-hmm. I found that a little bit, because I didn't know anybody who lived like, like that. When I grew up in the Bronx in Brooklyn, we knew there was an Upper West Side, but we didn't know Zay Zay, Zay bars, And we didn't even yeah. know people could live in apartments that big. Later on in the show, they explained that it wasn't his apart- apartment. Yeah. Remember that? Because yeah. always people look at it. Yeah. How the hell is this Columbia professor? But then we found out the wife was rich. And remember that scene? They go down to Oklahoma, and everybody's going, "Yah, she he comes from an Orthodox oil family. Now, I want you to know, the founder of Yeshiva University, Bernard Revel, came from an Orthodox oil family. In to Tulsa. There was a, a lot of Jews involved in the oil business from Marietta, Ohio, all the way down to, to Texas. So I found that to be a very interesting and problematic part of the show where the woman is excluded in the old orthodox yes. manner. But I'm not worried about the a- a- actors. I've, I'm worried about inaccuracies.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's
2: like buying a leg of lamb for a rabbi at a breakfast. I say, God, to you, you couldn't find a Jew who knew that a leg of lamb is not k- k- kosher.
0: Thank you. These are my critiques. These are like basic things.
2: There Wait. aren't enough Jews in Hollywood or New York. You could ask him, uh, a rabbi right. a leg of lamb. Uh, no, There's no reason, right? There's no reason anytime now that you're doing something Jewish, that you can't get somebody in who say, this is what is authentic. If you want, right? It doesn't cost you a lot of money. They could have hired, hired, hired me.
0: But this is exactly the thing that bothers me about the show. It's not the concept of the show, but it's about a Jewish comedian. That's the idea. And it's about the world of Jewish comedy. So if you're making that show, why would you not have people with that knowledge in the writer's room with you to inform these creative choices.
2: Fifteen bucks, I would have told them, don't put a leg of like a lamb on a table in front of a rabbi. The most really Jewish show was Transparent.
1: Yeah, and, and I have to tell you, Moshe, the season I hated the most was the one that supposedly took place in Israel because it was so obviously a soundstage in, in L.A. It was distractingly dumb, the Israel season, and that was it for me. They sim- oversimplified the Israeli-Palestinian yeah. conflict. It was just...
2: yeah. But then again, uh, who wants to get into the actual complications of it between you and me? It's a little hard to do. But (laughs) what I found about that show was here were, quote-unquote, non-observant Jews, quote-unquote. And yet they were tied to tradition. There had to be a challah on the table. They had to light candles. But the bottom line was that they knew it was Shabbos. They knew it was Shabbos. Imagine, 10% of American Jews... Don't even know they're violating Shabbos. Halavai. Halavai, they should know it's Shabbos, and I'm not observing it. That would be a gewaltig zah. It would change all of Jewish life.
0: You began, Moshe, to speak a little bit about this before, and that's Israeli TV. Some of it goes over our heads because we're not Israeli. Dan and I don't have the context for some of the jokes, but we love shtisel. That is something that does translate, which is... Quite a bit of it is in Yiddish. So what do you think about this new, you know, the rise in popularity of Israeli television being watched by Americans, including shows like Shtissel, That's So Funny? And what do you think about this kind of revival of interest among some people in Yiddish jokes and insults? I think there's a connection between the popularity of Shtissel and that. I definitely feel that.
2: No, I think it's a bit earlier. I think it, there is a bit of a Yiddish revival. I watched a number of plays uh, online that was put up by uh, folks being in the theater. It was very lovely. A lot of young Jewish actors who speak Yiddish, a lot of yeah. who don't speak, but learn Yiddish, Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. Mm-hmm. People were very moved by it. Yiddish is diaspora. There is a breaking away from Israel. Yiddish is not seen as aggressive. Yiddish is uh, How do we say? Because I'm a Yiddish speaker, and as I get older, it goes back to the old uh, parts of the Sullerachways when they had. And uh, and it's uh, Yiddish is softens Hebrew, and uh, that's probably the why the Germans hated the Jews because they softened German with Yiddish. They couldn't stand it. But whatever. We
0: made it better
2: that's a separate side comment but the point is schtissel has a lot of in it. it's quite good what i find fascinating is the guy who plays it nochem from is a well-known sefardi actor who played in the band's visit in the film sasson gabay and uh Glick glickman so funny. what made the show a success was that it used it, it, first of all it starred all of the major israeli actors these were not people that people didn't know so they knew uh eloni michael eloni and they knew how gorgeous he was yes we know and they knew Dov glickman from zeh who there was on television for 20 years and they knew that the, played the divorcee ayelet yeah has been it has been in Amer- american films as well so whatever they brought together a great cast the fellow who does the show joseph dorsky was himself a haredi a punovich guy a really sheshiva guy who broke away, but he couldn't break away, obviously. <laughs> he couldn't break away. So he said, this is the way I stay. I'll stay by showing you what we have. And I uh, think the show worked at a lot of different levels. First of all, it humanizes these people who dress funny. And second, you realize, guess what? They love each other like families love each other, too. You mean they have capacity to love. And they are willing to do stuff for each other. It's a great community. There's even place for tshuva. Lippa, not Lippa, yeah, Lippa, who comes back from Argentina, and turns out to be one of the Menshier people in the show, and he's one of a well-known Israeli actor, etc., etc. So every character in the show carried a certain aspect of that human experience, and it exposed people to a scene that they didn't know and were surprised about. Were surprised. Mm-hmm. I watched the show in in Infinite and keep and put Israeli f- subtitles on Hebrew subtitles. So I keep. So if I miss something, I, I know what they said. So I, I I love the Yiddish. I found it was done naturally. Was a little surprised that the kids, that the age group of of Akiva, were not speaking more and more Yiddish. I was surprised because that's not the case. They are speaking more and more Yiddish. So we have secular Yiddishness that are growing. Klezmer Yiddish Yiddish songs being recorded all over the world and i do think it is a little bit about the divergence from zionism which is the classic division Yiddishists and hebrists that goes back about a hundred years now more than a hundred years all i can say is i i hope that uh, they find uh, so then they did unorthodox to sort of uh cure you of schnitzel we
0: hate that we rip that to shreds on this podcast
2: Ter- terrible show terrible i know shira Has She's intense and uh, yeah She's inter- no. This, the whole plot, the whole plot was stupid.
0: Thank you for agreeing with me.
2: I think Schnitzel was a success because it did expose Jews as very noble people, ultimately, who care about the things that we care about: their children's welfare, marriage, loyalties, etc. And what was wonderful about the show was that Akiva could leave. Can be part of yes. that community and become yes. a painter he doesn't have to leave like traditionally oh you know like, like asher lev he's got to leave the community no he stays within the community lucks out and marries a million millionaire which is not that creates a bit of a happy ending there
1: okay we have amazing examples of funny jewish women from joan rivers and gilda radner to rachel drach a fellow Lexingtonian. Sarah Silverman, Tiffany Haddish, Chelsea Handler, Alana Glazer, etc. If you updated the book for the fortieth anniversary, who would be the women named on the cover? I don't know if you can see this cover, but it's got a long list of Jewish comedians on it.
2: First of all, it, it was there always were women comedians. There was a whole tradition called the Red Hot Mama tradition. Mm-hmm. These were women like Sophie T- T- Tucker, Bella Bart, Todie Fields, and they were permitted to be bawdy, and uh, they were permitted to be Mae Westish. And Joan Rivers is the end of that tradition, which went uh, quite a number of years, 80 years. We had Fanny Bryce, of course, uh, the contemporary ones that i happen to enjoy uh are sarah silverman and we would include stuff from her particularly her take on on uh, being jewish because she has a take on it which is a uh, very interesting yeah chelsea handler doesn't do it for me at all as we say she doesn't have a jewish taste in any way and then i'd like uh very much uh, this tiffany haddish is new to me I think she's so good, and she would definitely be part of it. Who else did you mention there? Mention uh, I put there? Gilda Radner on there, who I adore. Gilda Radner, absolutely. I miss her. We went to see her live on Broadway. Gilda Radner had uh, terrific, uh, again, I use the word taste. Geschmack. You know, geschmack means really good taste. And geschmack, I
1: know the word geschmack.
2: Geschmack, the German, <laughs> but you say geschmack. Uh, and who else? And who else uh, uh, did Alana you, you mention? Who,
0: Alana, Alana Glazer.
2: Alana Glazer and her partner. Abby, yeah, I think the show had a lot of like. There's a couple of scripts of them in Florida that I really like, with their visiting grandma, I believe, and and I thought there was some clever stuff there. They, they definitely would be in there, and and they're pretty upfront. You see, I, I want people who are upfront, and uh, because ultimately, I think it's a plus for the humor. It's a plus for the viewer it's a plus that this person knows where they come come from it's a plus that they're speaking in somewhat with some authentic connection so today we would take the thing is what's problematic it's very hard we tried it's very hard to write down a stand-up it doesn't work on the page if i did a show today it would be all clips because you need that interchange the energy you would
0: do the 40th anniversary one as a digital PDF.
2: <laughs> it is a series of memes. Well, like for instance, I've done, done a few on the road gigs during co COVID. And because of the nature of this medium, I could share screen clips and they speak f- for more than anything. You know what else is a very Jewish show with Shits Creek. Yes. Yes. Right. Shits Creek. And there was a show done, a movie done by Christopher Guest, best of show. He did a show for your consideration, the movie for your consideration. You ever see this? No. It was about a guy trying to do a film for the Oscars, right? He wanted to do a film that was going to win an Oscar. So they pick a film called Coming Home for Purim. And they have a beautiful Purim tish and uh, Catherine O'Hara is in what? it and the Harry Sh- Shearer. And there's groggers and the singing. And it was, just, it was a beautiful uh, scene. So yeah, Schitt's Creek was a very good example. And you know what? I, I just saw it the other day, and I really recommend it to everybody. It was an HBO a while back called Coastal Elites. You must see this. It's, a, it's five monologues about COVID. Bette Midler is one of them. She's phenomenal. Uh, Issa Rae, yeah. you know her from, she was phenomenal. Anyone who does
1: crosswords knows Issa Rae.
2: And what's his name? Uh, Levy from Shit's oh, Creek. Oh,
0: Dan Levy? Or- Dan
2: Levy, beautifully done. And you really see why these people are good, good actors. They're just you and the screen. And the script was written by Paul Rudnick. You know his work? He writes, Yorker, he writes for The New Yorker, etc. He writes for The New Yorker. very good. So I, I suggest that Coastal Elites and Bette Midler, it's a, she's a Jewish woman talking. As she says it, I'm a Jewish woman. Miriam Nestler is a character. Then they tie it in. I won't give it away, but they tie it in with one of the last monologues. Bette Midler is a great example. There's stuff coming up. There's stuff coming up. There are a lot of Jewish women writers on TV shows now, which I find very encouraging. But I think it's like anything else. We, America, the joke was America's maybe getting more Jewish and Jews are getting less Jewish. And then I have to deal with the whole Jewish thing. Are you Jewish or are you a Jew? And I'm not sure that's the same thing. Would anybody do a show called Jewish? And you'd have to have a Zeta, I I would play, who's in the show saying, hey, you still need the tradition, you son of a bitch, you need the tradition. But that's, uh, I haven't been offered the part yet, because I haven't written the show.
0: Someone needs to write this, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Someone needs to write it. So so to to sum it up, so here's the thing. Jewish humor wants to open your mind, and more importantly, open your heart. And it wants to combine the capacity to be self-critical, to understand that we are human beings. It is really the ultimate, I can't find an etymological connection between the word humor and human. But I do know that without humor, we are less human. Thank you for having me, a garrulous Jew.
0: Rev. Moshe, thank you so much for bringing (laughs) us so much Jewish joy on this episode. We loved speaking with you today, and we'd love to have you back anytime to talk about literally whatever.
2: That sounds good to me. I love to talk, and you guys are great, too.
1: Thank you so much. Love, love you both.
0: Thank you. Thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and review The Vibe of the Tribe wherever you listen to pods, and follow at JewishBoston on social media. Till next time, everybody.